as you have a seat, I want to just take a moment and say this. I am a very thankful pastor. Uh, you Go ahead and have a seat. Yeah. I want to just let you know I'm a, a thankful pastor to be a part of a church that when we set a goal for 1750 we receive almost $2,500. And just so you know, that check's already been written. It's already been sent off, and uh, it's well on its way to uh, the hands of those who are in need. And so I'm just thankful that even though we can receive some of those benefits and those blessings of God's people giving sacrificially, at the same time, we're not, uh, not so inward-focused that we can't take up that offering and be a part of that, that going forward. And so I'm privileged to be a part of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I want to just pick up where we, picked, where we left off last week. Last week we looked at the uh, David in the Valley of Elah. That's where we left him. And there was Goliath's body in the, the bottom of the valley, and David comes up out with that head, right? And it's kind of a gruesome thing, but we, we relish in that as well, and the fact that David experienced victory over the greatest enemy that Israel had faced. And we found confidence in the fact that God would give us victory as well through the person of Jesus Christ as he came up out of the grave. And as, uh, t- as Brett said earlier, we celebrate that every single Sunday, the fact that our Lord is resurrected. And so this morning, I hope that you're encouraged by that. David, I know that he was. Imagine that was a, that was a watershed moment for him as he walked up out of there. Imagine the, the emotion that he was experiencing. It was, a, it was a special day for that guy. But not long after that, he begins to embark on a road that would go down a little bit of a darker path. Almost immediately, Saul's heart begins to be jealous against David, and he begins to despise David. It gets to the point that David is on the run. He's even fearing for his own life, uh, hiding in caves, hiding in uh, people's houses, uh, people getting killed as they protect him. It was a terrible thing, terrible thing. David remains faithful to the Lord and all of that, but it was definitely a dark night of the soul for our friend David here. Yet God would time and again protect David. Eventually things begin to get better. Saul dies in battle, and that's a terrible thing to say, but he was attacking David, and he dies in battle as God uh, prophesied and said that would take place. David's crowned king. The ark is brought to Jerusalem. The the tribes are unified once again, and they're unified under David. He begins to have military success again against the Philistines, and so things are really on the up and up. That's where our story picks up this morning. So I imagine as David comes home from one of his battles, he's the great king, the warrior king who had been out leading his people, fighting with them on the front lines. He comes in, he takes his sword off, he's tired, maybe even a little bit bloody, right? He takes that sword off and he puts it up against the, 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 the corner. The kids come running to him, they want to hang out with dad. He's tired, he's wore out, but yet he pours himself out like a good father for his kids, right? We'd hope that that's what, what takes place in this picture in our minds. He spends some time with them, and they put him to, he puts him to bed. He's, he's worked that day. He's tired. He spends some time with his wife, loves on her, and, and, and hears what's going on in her life and tells her the good parts of the day that he experienced to be encouraging to her. And she slips off into the best sleep that she's had in a while as her husband is home, safe and sound. And there's David left by himself, thoughts racing, not able to uh, get to sleep. And so he walks out possibly on the balcony maybe. And this is all just imaginative, but I see it in my mind very clear. He looks out across that kingdom, the kingdom that used to be King Saul's. And now it's his. The kingdom that would have been his best friend, Jonathan's. But now it's not. He's dead. David possibly begins to remember the reminisce in a, you know, one of those nostalgic times you feel yourself moving into that. It's going to be emotional and that's where he's at. And 
begins to think about the times that he had with Jonathan, all the, all the times that they went out to battle together, and he remembered the, the camaraderie that they had, the inside jokes, just the pleasure of the Lord working in their lives and defeating through them Israel's enemies. It's a sad time. He begins to think back to the time that they made a covenant together, a time when David and Jonathan promised to one another that they would remain close. And Jonathan asks David, he says, David, I know that you're going to be the king. I know that the Lord is taking. This is hard to say. He says, Jonathan, I know, or David, I know that the Lord is taking the kingdom from my dad. He said, but will you do me this favor? This, this friendship that we've had now, can it transcend this time? When you become king, will you remember my family too? Even if I'm dead, will you remember my family? It's not hard for David to agree to that. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? You could, you could pour that out and they would agree to it. You could know that you could trust them. David felt that. Jonathan felt that. They were close. David says, yeah, I can do that. It wasn't difficult for him to agree to this covenant with Jonathan. He humbly, graciously asks. David agrees. It's an odd arrangement. And here's why it's odd. Because in those days, it was very uncommon for one house to get along with another, as it were, in these kingdoms and such. What would take place oftentimes when the new king would, would come, to th- come to power, almost immediately the entirety of the family that was previously ruling would be removed. And not just removed, they would be eradicated, they would be killed. Why? It's not, it's not safe for the new king. It's not safe for the new king's children to be around the other kids' children. Why? Because they may try to somehow take control back. So they would almost always, in some way, isolate or kill the previous ruling family. So it was odd for David to agree to this, and yet it's no, no heavy thing for him. He promises to Jonathan that he'll do it. And not only that, but that he'll take care in his power. He'll take care of his friend's family. And that's where we're at this morning. Jonathan is gone. Saul is gone. David's reminiscing. He begins to think back to that promise. And he, and he says this in verse number 1 of chapter 9, 2 Samuel. Would you read that with me? David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, someone, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I can show my kindness of God to, to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir and the, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your, your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid him homage and said, What is your servant? You should show regard for a dead dog such as I. 
And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and, all, and, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth's but Mephibosheth, your grandson's, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, as we look at this story of this young man, he was in a hard place, experienced some tough things in life. Maybe our minds are drawn to the fact that we're not so different Pray that you'd help us to see even more than we have at first glance, how much in common we have with Mephibosheth. We pray again that our hearts would be cared for this morning as we look at this, that we would be encouraged. God, where we've been lazy, where we haven't cared for those around us, would would you open our eyes to the the blessings that you've given to us and the areas that you would want us to be a blessing? God, would you use us, not for our glory, but for yours, to use the scripture this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. As we walk through this uh, text this morning, I want to just kind of help you to see from three different viewpoints, from three different viewpoints. We'll begin by looking at this story through the eyes of David. So walk with me as we, uh, as we explore David's viewpoint here. You have to understand that David's life at this point was extremely great. Everything was going well for David. He was on top of the world, literally. It seemed like he couldn't be stopped. He's walking with the Lord. He's enjoying respect from his people. He's defeating his enemies at battle. Everything's going well. His table is full of food. He's experiencing tons of blessings there, as it were. He had it all. Then he, in that moment, remembers. As he reaches the top, he remembers the promise that he had made to his friend and he asks himself there is there anyone left that I could show kindness to is there anybody that God has placed in my life where I could extend this goodness that I'm experiencing too so you see David was a promise keeper he shows himself as the greatest example of covenant faithfulness to date in the life of a human which by the way is of highest virtue in this society covenant faithfulness keeping the promises that you've made David begins to to work in that so he had promised Jonathan and he wanted to fulfill it but the question was was anybody left and so David begins to to do his uh detective work he begins to investigate he he finds Ziba he brings Ziba up and he says hey tell me is there anybody of the house of Saul that's still left If you've never heard this story, or even if you've heard it a thousand times, I imagine that your emotions are reaching fever pitch as you think about this. The kindness of King Saul, just saying, is there anybody that's in need? Is there anybody that I could show kindness to that needs kindness showed to them? Immediately, David hears of Mephibosheth and sends for this young man to be brought to him. 
I want to point out a, a subtle shift here, by the way. Verse 1, it says kindness for Jonathan's sake. But in verse 3, it says the kindness of God. So David's looking to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. But the second time it's mentioned, he wants to show kindness. What? The kindness of God. I want to ask you this morning, what is it? What is the, the kindness of God? Well, there's a couple explanations for it. The first explanation that you could put out there next to the kindness of God is this. It's the type of kindness that God would show and that God has shown. It's the type of kindness that typically emanates from Yahweh. That's the first explanation of what it means here. And the second explanation, which I prefer, is this, that God has placed, David's saying this, that God has placed me here in this particular position with these resources to show kindness to this specific person that it wasn't just some it wasn't kindness like the kindness of God that it was the very kindness of God specifically and precisely working through the life of David in and to the life of Mephibosheth so with that in mind I want to ask you this question who has God placed in your life for you to show the kindness of God to? Who? Let me ask you in another way. What has God blessed you with that he would love for you, that he desires for you to extend to somebody else? How is God, Christian, how is God desiring to work through you even this morning, even this week in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood? How is God wanting to use you? Who has he placed there? What has he given to you? I love that David begins to seek these things out. It's a beautiful thing. As I look around, as I go through my week, I notice two things, two things that we have no shortage of resources. Now you might say, that's, that's not true, Pastor Josh. I have shortage of resources in my life. And I would say, no. Relative to the world, no, we do not. And besides, even if you, if you went immediately to financial resources or even physical resources, I would say this. We have no shortage of physical or, or spiritual resources. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We, we hold in our own souls the gospel itself. The manifestation of the kindness of God that he has given to us as his people. So we have no shortage of resources, but I do also notice another thing in Hagerstown, and that's this, that there is no shortage of need. Everywhere you look, there's somebody in need. We've talked about Hagerstown and Hank for a long time. We've identified places where we say, God, we see in this city, this is where people are hurting. This is where there's hopelessness. This is where there's brokenness. And we've asked God to help us and, and give us eyes to see as he would see and to help us to enter into those moments so that we can extend the kindness of God that we have received to the world around us, specifically to Hagerstown. As we think of Annie Armstrong Easter offering and we celebrate the fact that God is using us even in a small way to reach other parts of North America. We praise God for that. As we celebrate our missionaries who many of us personally care for and pray for and send resources to. As we think about that, celebrate that as well. But don't forget that God has called us to Hagerstown and he's given us blessings, both physical and spiritual, that can't be numbered. And he said, hey, I've given you these so that you can find somebody to show my kindness to. So think about this in your life. Who is there 
What is there that God has called you providentially to, ex- to, to, to extend kindness to? I pray that you ask with eyes of faith that he would give that to you. So it's interesting as I read this story and I think of this, this guy Ziba, I, it, it makes me think of the Holy Spirit in a sense. In a sense that when, when David says, hey, Mephibosheth, all these things are going to be given to you, how does it actually take place? Well, it takes place because Ziba's going to do the work. Ziba's going to be there to do the work, right? Who's the guy that told David who, where Mephibosheth was? Ziba, right? That's a cool name, by the way, if you're looking for a good name. That's a good name, maybe a nickname, right? But Ziba's this guy, he's, he's present. He's, he's, he's pointing things out and he's making stuff happen for King David. And God has given to us spirit the spirit we ask the spirit spirit lead us guide us give us eyes to see as you see i put that before you this morning church be asking god here at the end of april entering into may i want to just make you aware of something may is national foster care awareness month some of you are thinking is he going to tell is he going to talk to us about uh, having kids in our i don't <laughs> I don't know, especially the singles. They're kind of getting concerned right now. I can see their faces. I don't, I don't know. But here's what I want to, I want to lead our church to do. As we consider the, 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 the hopelessness in so many situations with so many kids that are childless, or, or not childless, but fatherless, motherless, without a home, I want to lead our church to ask God right now, to ask the Spirit of God to, in prayer and in faith to, to give us eyes to see as he would see, as he does see. To ask, us, ask him to, to, to show us how he would have us as a church, as families, as individuals, to be a part of the hope going forth to, the, to those that are hurting here in Hagerstown. So I want to lead us to that. Begin now, even right now. I want to lead us in a prayer now to begin asking God, would you give us eyes to see as you see? Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing that there is a world out there that is hurting Father, while they need to repent of their sin, we know this, that the, so many are enslaved to their sin and enslaved by other sins in addition to that on top of that. So many children even are hurting, even this morning, even in Washington County, even in our state. We pray that you would give us eyes to see. Father, that you'd give us handles and pathways that we could walk in and take hold of as we work to see darkness push back, as we work to see your gospel go forward. Father, we pray that you'd empower us, that you'd give us wisdom, Father, that you'd give us courage as we move forward into the darkness to make a difference, not for our good, but for your glory, for the good of those around us. We ask these things in your name and in faith, knowing that you'll give it to us. We ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. So begin thinking of that. Begin praying. Do some research. How can we be a part of, of helping those who are in need, even here in Washington County? That's not the only way that I would just point out to you this morning. There's many other ways. Even if you look in the loop this morning, there's ways that you can say, hey, there's those that are, that are without that we could help. Some of us are even involved on a weekly basis of being a part of mentoring in schools like Pangborn, schools like Easter, and going and spending time with kids that are just broken and, and coming from homes that are lost and dark, void of the gospel. And while we want to send people all the way to the other side, literally to the other end of the world, know this. There is no shortage of need even here in this school that we meet in. I ask God to give us a heart for the kids that sit in the very seats that you sit in on a weekly basis. I ask God to break our hearts for those who are around us. He's given us so many resources, chief among them the gospel. And would we not ask him to give us eyes to see 
to seek out who would need this, who would receive it. So we've got those, we've got mentoring, we've got reading, we've got uh, those in your neighborhood. Ask God. Continually ask him. What a blessing it would be for us to, to look back over the year behind us and say, look how God has blessed and given us and we've given it away. I ask the Spirit to, to lead us in that. As much as you love that King David, though, would keep his promise and reach out to the son of Saul, to the son of Jonathan, and it gets even more beautiful when you realize the, the plight of Mephibosheth. See, David, when you look at that, you think, now that, that guy, he, he is the man. He's got such a heart for those in need. He's got such a heart. He's not going to keep all these blessings that he's received for himself. And you think, well, what a great guy. But it gets even more intense. It, the emotion gets even more rich as we think about through the eyes of Mephibosheth, through his viewpoint, what he actually experienced. So we looked a little bit from David's perspective. What a guy. How sensitive to the Lord. Beautiful. Covenant faithfulness. Now let's look at Mephibosheth. What was he dealing with? We first hear of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, and I'm going to read that to you this morning. It says quickly about just introducing this guy. Verse 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, who had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Think about this. I think we already talked about this a little bit, but it wasn't uncommon, remember, for the offspring of a fallen, deposed king to be in serious danger. This nurse was no fool. She recognized that. Not just in danger from enemies, foreign, but also domestic. There would be a feud of sorts. She's intelligent enough to know that Mephibosheth's life is in danger. And as she loves this child, she picks him up with everything she can, and she's going to the safe place, right? She grabs her bug-out bag. She gets news that it's, it's gone down. She begins to run. There's some type of an accident. We don't know the details, but Mephibosheth in the end is crippled. He's lost use of both of his feet, unable to walk. What a disaster, what a loss. In one day, it's almost similar to the life of Job, just like everything happening all in one moment. He's a five-year-old child. Now he's fatherless, without a future, without any value as far as the world would even consider this young man with no home, what would he do? What, what a disaster. He'd lost his grandfather. He lost his father, his inheritance, and even his ability to walk all in one day. Talk about a bad day, right? Putting things in perspective for us this morning. Tough, tough day. Tough, tough loss, right? Since that day, he's lived in seclusion, hiding away, away from the life his father always had known, what he was even destined to know at one point. This is the life of Mephibosheth, living in shame, Ashamed of the house of Saul and the things that his grandfather had done. Maybe you can relate to that. Somebody in your family has done something that wasn't beautiful, wasn't, wasn't picturesque, isn't celebrated. Maybe you cannot relate to this. This is, this is Mephibosheth. Even if he wasn't feeling like he was in danger, he was at least living in shame. It's a terrible situation. Since that day he's lived in fear, David comes to the throne. Abner is his his. his Essentially, his uncle, his, his grandfather's uh, she, a cap general of the army is murdered. He hears about this. He, he hears about his uncle, Ishbosheth, is murdered as he slept in his own house. He begins to think, am I next? 
living in anxiety, right? Maybe you can begin to relate to that. Maybe you've experienced some anxiety as well. Enters into the presence of, of the king, even though as he's been summoned to him. And the anxiety is even more heightened, right? There he is in his home, keeping to himself. He hears something come up in the front driveway. They look out the window and they see this is a royal entourage. The king's servant comes and says, the king, King David, wants Mephibosheth. What's going through his mind? We know what's happening. We know we're at the heart of David, but he does not. So anxiety, fear. All these other people had been murdered and killed. It's, it's his turn now. It was his time, right? Perhaps he's embarrassed. I don't want to face the king. In a sense, he has the same last name as King Saul. It went off the rails. Perhaps he feels helpless. Almost as if he's in a straitjacket, unable to run, unable to argue, unable to rescue himself, being tied up, unable to move in a sense. And there he stands before the new king. With emotions all over the place, not sure what's going to take place, he leans forward, he falls on his face before King David. He has no choice but to humbly submit to King David. And the Bible uses this word homage. It almost sounds like a like a breakfast food made of chickpeas, but it's homage is, is submission. It's recognizing the authority that he's in the presence of. It gives the idea of recognizing, coming to the point where you have, you've realized who you're in the presence of. So he pays homage to King David. Homage is almost like running through the jungle and as you turn around the corner, you're face to face with a giant cat. And ain't that the, the house variety? You're face to face with a lion in maturity, right? And you hear the roar and you see the mane and that moment, <laughs> you're recognizing the greatness of what you're in the presence of. In a sense, that's, that's homage. So Mephibosheth is there and he falls on his face before King David. What's interesting is that in one sense, Mephibosheth recognizes the greatness of King David. But then it says here that David recognized Mephibosheth. Not, oh, now I know who you are. Now I remember you. I knew I had you. I couldn't place your face. That's not what I'm saying by, by recognizing, but he calls out his name. King David calls this young man out by his name. And in that moment, I believe this, that Mephibosheth began, his anxieties began to melt away as he heard his name called out by this great king. See, a person's name is the greatest connection to our own identity and our individuality. And some might say it's, it's the most important word that you'll ever hear in some ways. Now, you, we could argue that, but it's definitely important in the life of an individual to hear their own name. It's so valuable. And that King David would, would call out to this man, not by servant, not by son of Saul, but by Mephibosheth. He knew his name and he wasn't angry at him. And in that moment, the anxiety begins to just melt away. So Mephibosheth respond, responds in a way that sounds a bit like the call of Saul, right? Or the call of Samuel, rather. Samuel, there he is laying in his bed. And God calls out and says, Samuel. Samuel says, he goes to Eli and he says, what, what do you need? Did you need me? This little boy. Eli says, no, I didn't call for you. Go back to bed. 
Samuel goes back and lays back down. That happens two more times, right? And Eli realizes what's happening and he says, okay, hey, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh crying out, calling out to you right now. He knows your name. He's speaking to you right now. And when he says your name next time, he says, tell him, tell him you're here. So Samuel goes back and lays down. He wonders if the, the name will be called, his name will be called again. And that special connection, the fact that Yahweh would know this little boy's name. He calls to him and this boy says, speak, Lord. Speak, Yahweh. Your servant hears. Your servant's listening. I'm right here. This is what Mephibosheth says too. When King David calls out to Mephibosheth, he says his name. He says, I am your servant. Here I am. That anxiety melting away. He's submitting even more to his king here in in the presence of others. If you've ever been a recipient of the the kindness of Almighty God, I'm suspicious that that, uh, you have. You would display similarly to what Mephibosheth does right here. That you would say in that moment, I'm your servant. You see, the role of Samuel was what? It was to bring glory to God. It was to, 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 to glorify God among the Israelites. What was the, what was the role? What was the goal of Mephibosheth? As it related to David, what, what would people do when they heard of this story? What do we do when we hear the story of David? We, we celebrate how great, how faithful David was, how kind David was. And even how gr- much greater our God is that he would lead King David to do such a thing. That's been our job. That's our role as well. Just as Samuel, just as Mephibosheth, to make great, to, 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 make, uh, to glorify the God who has sent us, that has given us this job. So he answers, behold, I am your servant, he says to David. David counters that uh, comment by sharing with Mephibosheth all that he has planned for him. Everything that he's planned. Look there in verse 7, chapter 9. He says, David said to him, don't fear. There's no reason for you to be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What a beautiful thing. He didn't, maybe didn't remember his father much. He says, hey, I, I know your father. I loved your father. And I'm going to show you kindness because of your father. Beginning to push back and wash away some of the reproach that Mephibosheth was feeling. David goes on, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Everything that was been taken from you, everything that was lost, it's going to be restored. You'll eat at my table, he says. What a gift. It says here again that Mephibosheth paid homage. What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? The fact that Jonathan, all of his land had been lost, had been taken away, but now would be given back to Mephibosheth was paramount. This belonged even to his grandfather, even to Saul. He'd been living in somebody else's home for so long now. No home of his own, nothing to, nothing to call his own, but it would all be restored. He would have land. And you might think, well, land, that'd be nice. Maybe, maybe now Mephibosheth could put a swing out back, right? Maybe he could get a, an ATV where he could ride around this land and just kind of see the, the... No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't just, oh, now he has land to go get away on the weekends. It wasn't like that. The fact that David would be giving these lands back was many things. But one thing, it was an investment opportunity. It's like giving someone a million dollars and telling them to have fun on, in the stock market. This is what David was giving back to Jonathan. Financial freedom in a sense. A place to call his own. 
And that idea of land was deeply connected with this idea of him actually having a family and the name of Saul being restored and, not the, re- and the reproach, in a sense, rolled away. Because you see what was happening was, one by one, Saul's descendants were falling away, being murdered, had been killed in battle or whatever. And now it's to the end. Of, will there be any more descendants of Saul or will his name be snuffed out forever? And here Mephibosheth is called up and that land is given back and that name is restored and it's so beautiful that as we see at the very end of this chapter and it even says for it gives us some interesting points you might just gloss over it but the fact that Mephibosheth has a son and mentioned here one son Micah it's mentioned there it says this the, the name continues the family lives on what had been taken is now restored it's a beautiful beautiful thing so this land being given back the name being restored and to beat it all, Mephibosheth had been given an invitation to sit at the king's table and eat and commune with the king himself. Think about that. We're not talking about a tour of the White House with a, a boxed dinner from Panera Bread, as many of you ladies would be so excited about that. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about a letter with a fake stamp signature from the, 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 the sitting president. We're not talking about that. We're talking about to actually do life one of the most special and intimate times a a person can have in the middle east in this day and age was to sit down and have a meal with somebody else to imagine that this opportunity was being extended to Mephibosheth he would sit at the king's table that he would be nourished by his table and he would enjoy fellowship with his sons with the king himself it reminds me of the special privileges that, that Moses had. If you, if you looked over at Exodus chapter 33 or just write it down in your notes, I'll read it for you. Exodus 33, verse, starting in verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called the tent the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into that tent. Then Moses, or when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This beautiful picture that Moses, in a way, would intercede for the people between God. We'd go out to the tent of meeting and there he would meet with, with Yahweh. He would talk with him. It says here, he would talk with Yahweh as a man talks with his friend. Think of the invitation that had been extended to Moses. Think of the, it's similar to that, but the greatest, highest honor, humanly speaking, would be to sit at the king's table and talk with him as friend to friend. And Christian, I'm here to say that no longer do we have to have Moses or me or, or Pastor Tim or somebody like that to intercede for you. No, you now can meet and talk with to God face to face, each and every one of you as a man talks with his friend. We don't need the tent of meeting anymore. The tabernacle of God is with men, right? And now, listen, check this out. David, a, a picture of Christ, invites Mephibosheth to his table. And you say, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be able to sit at the king's table and to, to enjoy his nourishment. 
to enjoy his company and to, li- to hear him talk and for him to listen to me talk. You'd love that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that offer is extended to you. Christian, that, that opportunity is given to you through prayer. When we call out to God, he hears us. What a beautiful thing. We no longer need a tent of meeting. We no longer need an invitation to the king's table. We have been given that, each and every one of us. And one of the most beautiful, wonderful things about our God is that he has not slowed down. In Hagerstown right now, you might be disappointed to know that your internet has not been working, right? And I, don't, I hate to bring this up in such a special moment as we look at the word of God and so many of you, your, your minds went to dark places as you thought of what you would do to somebody that wore a shirt that said Antietam Cable, right? And yet there's no shortage There's nobody that can crash the server. There's not too many of us that can log on and bring that down. It doesn't take place. That each and every one of us can access this God face-to-face and meet with him as a friend. How many of us, when we are friends with one person, we lose the ability to be super connected with this other person that we used to be? And then, you know, disappointment follows, and we feel bad because we're not as good a friend as we want to be. The God does not experience that. He knows nothing of that. The closer that you are to the Lord, it has no bearing on whether or not now you can get to see your father. Whether or not you'll have time with your friend to speak with him face to face. He's always there. He's always available to the believer. And what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful picture that we see here. Prayer is a privilege. We're invited to speak with God. Can you, that God would even allow us to experience and, and fathom just a fraction of that truth. He has given us the opportunity to speak into his ear and that he would listen to us. So the Lord's table is more than just nourishment. Sitting at the high king's table is more than just nourishment. It's a relationship. You can't miss that. The creator, the creator God of the universe who holds all things together by his power would want to hear you speak. And he does. By the way, if you're not a Christian this morning, I would still say that the Lord of all the universe wants to hear you speak. And the first things that he would want to hear you speak to them, him is words of repentance. As you repent, as you in humility fall before the Lord, call out that you are his servant. In repentance of your sin, knowing this, that you have access because of Jesus Christ. So David extends mercy for the past as he says, I, I'm going to push back these things that used to be true about your family that are, not, that are unsightly, that are shameful. I'm going to push those things back. I'm going to extend mercy over the past. And he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you grace for the future. From now, moving forward, I'll treat you like a son and you'll sit at my table. It's a beautiful thing. What's the response that Mephibosheth offers here? What does he say? He says, I... Why would you do this for a dog? Some of you are like, well, that's not so bad. I really like my Newfie Poo, or I really like my little Yorkie, and they're really special. Well, again, we've got to read the, the con- this in context. When Mephibosheth says he's a dead dog, he's, he's not just saying, well, he's a dog that's dead. It used to be pretty. It has a collar on its neck. No, he's not referencing this beautiful dog that got hit on the side of the road and you're really sad about it because you remember just a few streets back, you remember seeing a sign that said lost and it was that dog. No, that's not what's taking place here. When Mephibosheth says, why would you do this for a dead dog? He's, he's saying this unclean scavenger that has no home, that, that walks around eating garbage, 
that passes on diseases, that stinks, that you don't want to be around it when it's alive. And now I'm as bad as a dead one. Why would you do this for me? He's not speaking of some beautiful critter that's cared for. He's saying, I'm a dead dog. I'm unwanted. The fleas don't even want to be on me. Why would you want me? Why would you want to be a part? Why would you want me to be a part of your life? Why would you give me opportunity to sit at your table? How unsightly. David says, I want you to sit at my table. And he says, I'm a dead dog. I'm a festering, filthy scavenger, full of diseases. Why would you want me at your table? David doesn't even address it. We don't know. Maybe he does in the moment. We don't know. But he doesn't address it in the text. We don't see it. The answer is still there. Why Why would David do that? Why would David reach out to this? Why would he extend to Mephibosheth this this offer to sit at his table? It's because of this. Through David, God was showing his kindness to Mephibosheth. Through David, God was showing his kindness to Mephibosheth. That goes back to that call, that plea to Hagerstown Church. To you as as a Christian here this morning, what has God called you to do? How, How is he... Desiring to work in and through your life to show his kindness to those in Hagerstown. That's what David was doing. Yeah, David was a great guy. We'll find out next week. He wasn't all that great. But David served a God who was far greater than we could ever imagine. Far kinder than David could ever even fake. This is God. He showed his kindness to him. This is one story in the Bible that really pulls on the heartstrings. If it were be, to be turned into a movie, it's the movie that the, the most hardened of all of us would cry at the end of. Right? We probably cry the whole time. Right? As you think about this, the kindness that is ex- extended here. It makes us feel better about humanity, right? A little bit, right? Like, well, maybe it's not, maybe we're not totally without hope. Right? But again, it's not, not because of man because of God but nonetheless we're still encouraged these are the kind of Facebook stories that we'll want to share it's inspirational right doesn't have any words it's just got the lettering at the bottom and that really exciting music about somebody who helps somebody cross the finish line or something like that but for whatever reason this is very emotional for us I think it's because we can connect with this we've looked at this story through David's viewpoint and then we've looked at it through Mephibosheth's viewpoint now I want to just I want to ask you to look at it through your own viewpoint So look at it through your own eyes. Look at this situation. I I would say this. Perhaps the reason why this story is so emotional for us, why it's so special to us, is because we realize, maybe even unconsciously to some degree, that we are Mephibosheth. That our story is like Mephibosheth. This is our story. We're broken people. As I said earlier, the, the, the greatest of us here, we are faithful to be disobedient to God. That's what we're faithful in. We are all, as Mephibosheth would say, dead dogs. When we get down to it, when we're by ourselves, when we're really looking at the mirror, we say this about ourselves. What? You're disgusting. You could be so selfish. You could care so much about yourself and other people. How could you treat somebody that way? How could you not remember this? How could you not do this? How could you be so stingy with the resources that you had? You look in the mirror and you say, that, why would I be like this? I know I say that on a weekly basis. I look in the mirror and say, why, God, would you even love me? Why would you care for me? This is my story. I'm Mephibosheth saying, God, why would you love me? I'm a dead dog. I have nothing to offer you but just to to take from you. 
This is my story too. Like Mephibosheth, we, we must lay ourselves low before God. We, we pour our hearts out in homage. We empty ourselves of pride. We repent of our sin and we reach out to the gift that God is extending to us, to the kindness that he is extending to us. I want to point something out. Did you notice that at the very end of the chapter, the writer is clear to, make us, to, to give us this point at the very end. What does it say? Oh, and by the way, Mephibosheth was lame in both of his feet. Why would they repeat that? Why is that there again? This whole story is about a young man. We, it's already been laid out in several different ways from different angles, how he can't help himself. He's lame. And so why is that there again at the end? I think the writer is trying to say, hey, don't forget. What makes this story so great is that this guy, Mephibosheth, has nothing to offer King David. Nothing. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And that's what makes it so special for us. As we consider the gospel, which is this, the good news. We think about the truth. The fact that we have nothing to offer God. Nothing to give him. Nothing. The only thing that we have to offer God is our brokenness and our lameness that makes his kindness so much sweeter. That's all we have. So if we're to come to God's table, if you have come to God's table, I want you to see this. This is what, this is what that last verse is saying. You'll have to be carried. You'll have to be carried. Again, the, the greatest of us, we might think how strong we are and how special we are and how much of a gift that we are to this world and this universe. And at the end of the day, you need to know this. If you come to the Lord's table, you will have to be carried. You can't even walk. I want that to just rest on your shoulders this morning. Do you see that? For all of your heritage, for all the goodness that you have brought into this world and done, think about this. You will have to be carried to the Lord's table. Day in and day out. You can't do it on your own. What a beautiful picture for us this morning. This life of Mephibosheth. Through David, God showed his kindness to Mephibosheth. Through David, God showed his kindness to Mephibosheth. Through Jesus, God shows his kindness to you. Through Jesus, God shows his kindness to you. The way that we come to the table to receive nourishment and enjoy fellowship with this God is the fact that Jesus would carry us to the table and he does that through the cross. He does that through the cross. Today we're going to take part in communion. (laughs) Again, God's grace to us that we would be providentially celebrating communion, observing communion on a day where we consider the life of Mephibosheth and how he was invited to the king's table. So this morning... Christian, you have been invited to the table. You'll eat at this table all the days of your life with the other princes, with the other princesses of the king. You'll eat here. You'll be nourished here. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not repented of your sin and placed your faith in the work of Jesus, the offer is still there for you to stand and to to, to be brought to this table. But if you come to this table, you will only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll only come as you repent of your sin, as you pour those out before the Lord and you trust the work of Jesus on the cross, trusting the fact that he resurrected, that God was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You'll only come to this table through the work of Jesus. When Jesus instituted and established this sacrament, he broke bread and he gave thanks. And that's what today's about. 
Imagine the first time that Mephibosheth sat at the, at the king's table. Imagine the joy that he experienced. Uneasy at first, I don't deserve this. Why would they be so kind to me? Why, why would I be given a seat here? There's anxiety building up in him, but he, as he begins to take part in that meal, I know this, that gratitude would just rush over Mephibosheth. I want to call you today, this morning, Christian, to that as we come to the table You would just celebrate and thank God that he would send Jesus, that Jesus would carry you to this table to eat at the king's table. That he would send the perfect lamb of God, that he would shed his blood, that his body would in a sense be broken. Give thanks for that this morning. This is our perpetual Passover meal. The ultimate lamb of God, the final lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf. Lord Jesus himself, he carries us to this table, the one who shed his blood so that we, through faith, can be nourished and protected here in this place. So today's a day, brothers and sisters, to give thanks to God. So as you look around this room and you see the other princes and and, and princesses of, of, of sorts that will come to this table, give thanks. In unison together, let's give thanks to God. This morning, I want to invite all those who profess a sincere faith in Jesus Christ and those who are living in accordance to his word, to his commands, who have a clear conscience this morning, I want to to invite you to partake of this Thanksgiving meal this morning. This is just a symbol for Christians. It's not for the entire world. Here today, we're nourished by the truths, not, not of the bread and the juice physically, but of what they represent. The body of Jesus will be broken and his blood will be shed for us. Those truths nourish us. As in gratitude, we take them, up, take them in. So our Lord Jesus Christ now is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he calls us together to this table to fellowship with him. So don't just come here and be nourished physically or spiritually even, just to think about the, the truths here, but communicate with our Father this morning. Communicate with the Son as we enjoy communion, fellowship with the Father with the God of this world. Augustine's words here are are helpful. Where Christ is, there is the church. And that assures us of Christ's presence with us this morning. The church, the princes, the, the princesses of God gathered together at his table. He is here with us this morning. And in some ways, more special of a way than he always is as we celebrate his broken body and his shed blood. And so Christ is our host this morning. He's carried us to this table through his cross and now he breaks the bread, he pours the juice and we enjoy it together. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow our heads now because Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we bow in reverence, respect and awe at this work that Jesus would give of his own life. He would humble himself even to, the, even to the point of dying on a cross. We pray that as we think of those things this morning, Jesus, as we think of your shed blood, that we would be nourished by that. These are your people. We are your people. You've called us to this place. And you've given us this gift. And we thank you for it. And we, we think of your broken body how it was torn for our transgressions. We make much of you this morning. 
We thank you for the cross. And even though we are as dead dogs, so to speak, you've loved us. And it's not ruined your appetite as you fellowship with us this morning. And you be glorified. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.